Okay, good evening. This is Relational Theology number 13 for the recording. Uh, subtitled, The Captivity of Philosophy. So let's pray. Lord, we really need you. We need your uh, wisdom from above as we understand, try and understand your word and the things about you. Thank you that you said if any lacks, lacks wisdom, let him ask God. So we just ask that you would give us supernatural wisdom. You are wisdom, and thank you for your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Remember, the Bible, the whole Bible, had nothing but the Bible. Sounds like it would be easy, right? Sorry, I didn't give my wife one. But as we saw last week, there are some weapons that the enemy uses uh, that distorts our perspective, that tries to blind us from the Bible. And often when we try to approach the Bible, we either have filters or uh, preconceptions or or presuppositions or different things, and we don't often don't realize them. So what we're trying to do is recognize what those are. So last week we talked about religion, tradition as one of the weapons of the enemy, and philosophy as the other. We talked a little bit of religion, and we had a quick run through history to try and understand how that worked. Uh, one of the conclusions I didn't get to last week is that... Uh, what we see is, it, as a result of religion, is the authority of position. There's this belief that if you have the position that God's given it to you, therefore you have an authority because you have the position. The Pope has an authority simply because he's the Pope. It has nothing to do with his character. It has nothing to do with his gifts. It just simply has to do with the position. Uh, and you would think that we would learn from that but you see throughout history, many kings and rulers had the same belief that, that they were somehow better. They were, many kings refer to themselves as divine. They were gods because they were the king. Somehow the fact that I'm in this position means I must be something better. Now obviously that's also how the world works, an authority of position, but we see that creep into the church. You would think that it, it wouldn't still be existent but it is when you can't question a leader because of their position, it's actually just religion. It breeds a hierarchy. Uh, you would think that we don't have it, but some of the, uh, the uh, teaching on covering, basically being undercover, that, that the whoever that spiritual leader is, they have a responsibility. And if you simply just obey what they say, don't question, just obey, and then God will protect you. Unfortunately, it doesn't actually say that in the Bible, but that's a byproduct of religion that just kind of hangs in there that, that basically says, how do I know it? I actually used to teach a class, so that was what we taught, spiritual authority. You have a direct relationship with God, but authority-wise, you have this indirect relationship 
and someone else tells you what, they have God's delegated authority and they tell you what God's saying, which sounds a whole lot like the, the uh, Catholic priests. You couldn't read the Bible, they had to tell you what it said. You couldn't talk to God, you had to confess your sins to them. So you had no secondhand relationship at best. And that still is evidence today. And so what we're trying to do, obviously, is bring to light some of the filters, the presuppositions that we have to be aware of if we're really going to actually read the Bible and see what the Bible says. Uh, and if we're going to guard the faith, we need to be aware of these weapons of the enemy. So that's what we started last week, even though I rushed through it. I hope you kind of got that, those two things. So we want to talk about philosophy. Colossians 2, verse 8, I read it to you last week, but let me do it again. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy. That word cheat literally means to plunder or take you captive. You get taken captive. Beware lest someone plunder you or take you captive through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. I want to talk about the plunder of philosophy, the captivity of philosophy. And as we ran through history, we got to the church getting away from the authority of the word and becoming its own authority until we got to the early 1500s. And we had the Reformation which was a breaking away of the th from the authority of the church and a return to the authority of Scripture. But we also had the Renaissance, which I mentioned last week, which was a, also a breaking away of the authority of the church. But it was a return to Greek philosophy. And so uh, we need to have a, a bit of an understanding. Both were breaking away from the authority of the Catholic Church, but they went different directions. And so I want to give you a brief overview of Plato's philosophy. I'm not going to get too in-depth here. If you want to study it, you can do it yourself. But basically, Plato valued reason above all else. And so he had this idea that reality is unchanging. Plato used terms, he called them forms. And so there was a, a unchanging form, which we might call spiritual. He didn't actually call it that. And then there was a natural form. And so his basic concept was that what is the real reality doesn't change. And therefore, anything that does change is at best a shadow of what is the real. Are you still with me? And so... These, the upper forms we would call spiritual, the lower forms we were called natural. He basically said the natural is not real because it changes. And only the upper is real. Okay, now Aristotle, who was one of his students, came along much later and he turned that whole thing around. And he said, we can't know the upper. We can only know what is here. So the only reality is what's here. Okay, we're going to see later on that he kind of gets sidetracked until the Renaissance. Uh, but Plato's concept then, he said, 
a God, if one exists, must be eternally unchanging. Therefore, he would be these three things. Timeless, meaning that he was outside of time. Immutable, which was his word for unchanging. And impassable, which was his word for unfeeling. And so God would be these things because if he's reality, he can't change. And so you understand that was his, his basic premise. And uh, we're going to deal with some of those but what that created was what philosophers have called a blueprint worldview. Basically, that everything in time, everything in the natural, follows a blueprint of the real in heaven. Are you still with me? Basically, everything happens for a reason, it's a blueprint. Now that was Plato, but as we saw at the conclusion of our last term, that was not the Christian worldview at all. The Christian worldview was one a, of kingdoms in conflict, a warfare worldview. And so Jesus came, established his kingdom, his new rulership, Satan, who was the god of this world, is in conflict with that, is, is trying to stop it. The kingdom is forcefully advanced. There is this, this power conflict of these two kingdoms. And so that was the basic principle of the church for a lot of years. But that wasn't Plato's idea. It was the Christian idea until we get to a guy named Augustine. Augustine about 400 A.D., he lived just prior to that, but about 400 A.D. Augustine got saved late in life. Uh, he was trained in philosophy and, and rhetoric, but he was influenced by Plato, and he's the guy who introduced the blueprint worldview to the church and virtually changed all kinds of things. So, like I said, prior to Augustine, the church had a warfare worldview, these deals of conflicts, and Augustine was the one who actually shifted that. If you read Augustine's uh, writings, you see that he was very heavily influenced by Plato, and so he picked those things up. He, uh, he actually were, was trained in those prior to getting saved. Now understand, the time he lives is just after Constantine had, one, made Christianity not outlawed, but it was right about the time when, uh, who was the guy I said last week, Theodosius, was the guy who made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. That was about 580, it's about 590 that Augustine gets saved. And so he jumps into this thing, but he's got this all this other background. And so as a result of that blueprint mentality, that blueprint worldview, he added a whole lot of theological beliefs, theologies, doctrines, that the church was, was unknown prior to his time. Things like original sin, baptism of infants for salvation, uh, 
It's the use of force in making converts. He actually felt that, you know, if you don't turn to Jesus, you're going to die. So the soldiers actually, at his request, would place the sword at the throat of a potential convert and say, either confess Jesus or die. And his belief, huh? Let's try that on Sunday. <laughs> but his belief was, if you reject Jesus, you're going to die anyway. Let's take him out of the world. All from this blueprint worldview. And then the other was the eternal now. He was the first uh, theologian to pick up that God is outside of time. Okay. Uh, now, if you look at that blueprint worldview, basically everything follows a heavenly blueprint. Uh, it produces a blueprint worldview is basically that God's a great architect of all human affairs, meticulously micromanaging all things. Therefore, all things, even the most evil things, happen for some mysterious, mysteriously greater good. It's a guy named uh, Greg Boyd. We'll deal with that later. But that blueprint worldview raised a huge question. That was the question of evil. Because if everything that happens is a copy of a heavenly blueprint then what we consider evil must actually come from heaven. Stay with me. Augustine's solution was this, and I quote, evil does not exist at all. And not only for you, God, but for your created universe. Because there is nothing outside it which could break in and destroy the order which you've imposed upon it. That which seems evil is actually a dimension of a higher harmony from this perspective. God sees a bigger picture. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that that's Plato philosophy in a different clothing. So this idea, not from the Bible, but from philosophy, that evil just doesn't even exist. Why? Because he was trying to fit with this Plato's blueprint worldview. Now obviously the, the question is, is that Bible? This class is Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. So help me God. Uh, have to think about that one. Okay, I'm not, I don't want to get into the, the bigger question. We're, we're going to get next week about that whole blueprint and divine providence and predestination and all that kind of stuff. But I want you to see where, where its foundation is. It starts with a philosophy first. And so what we have in religion is the authority of position. What we have in philosophy is the authority of the mind. 
reason, and logic became more an authority than the Bible. If it makes sense, it must be true. And then if we find something in the Bible that supports that, that's great. But if we don't, we'll just change the Bible. Or we'll just ignore that part. Or we'll actually make, make it say that it doesn't actually say that. Or we'll explain it away somehow because the authority becomes reason. Now why am I making a point of this? Because you're going to see that much of the stuff that we call theology later on is actually philosophy dressed up. And so if, we don't, if we're not aware of that, it becomes very difficult to say, okay, what does the Bible actually say? We're going to give it a, a, a shot. Just as an aside, while Augustine grabbed the philosophies of Plato, because Plato had this upper and lower forms, the spiritual and natural, you never hear about Aristotle until you get to the Renaissance. Because Aristotle rejected the upper form, rejected this whole concept of God, and said the only thing that's real is natural. We're going to see that next week. Okay? But interesting that he gets resurrected 1,500 years later, or 1,100 years later after Augustine, but it's kind of ignored. And it was Plato fit more into the, uh, the concepts of religion. So, what I'd like to do is kind of deal with the issue of God and time. Kind of as a warm us up for the stuff next week. Okay? So, we're going to take a look at that. God and time in the Bible. But again, before we do, we have to understand a little bit of what is time? Most of us, when we think of time, we think of the measurement of time. Right? Seconds, minutes, hours, days, months, years. All those are measurements of time. You ever figured out why a day is 24 hours? Because someone divided from the sun going up until the sun going up into 24 sections. Okay? It's not, it's not inherent in the definition. So what is the definition of time? Basically it's this. A continuum that is measured in terms of events which succeed one another from past through present to future. In other words, time is a sequence of events. Or some philosophers call it change. If there's change, there has to be time. A sequence. Past, present, and future requires a sequence. How we measure that is another story. Are you still with me? Okay, as I said, there's a difference between time, the sequence, and the measurement of time. And the other thing is that the sequence can endure, can continue indefinitely. That's the duration of time. But again, 
time and its basic thing is sequence. You weren't here and now you are here. For that to happen, there's something of time. Okay, are you, are you with me? Okay, what time you got here between 7 and 7.30 is just something that we agree upon at a certain time on the watch. We call this 7 o'clock. Before they had watches or clocks, what did they do? It was daylight or it was dark? During the day, huh? Sundial. It was early in the day or it was late in the day? Even the idea of noon was sometime when the sun was, it was, had reached its zenith and it, it hadn't gone down yet. And it, it was sometime in the middle of the day, but it wasn't a, a point in time. We call it absolutely 12 o'clock on the dot. One second is noon. One second after is afternoon. One second before is forenoon. But in most cultures, it was just sometime in the middle of the day. It, it might have been an hour because they couldn't measure it that... Stay with me. Okay, I'm, I'm getting sidetracked. <laughs> like we do with daylight savings. <clears throat> exactly. Daylight savings is a good... We just agree we're going to change the clocks. Right? Ha-ha. Well, it's just consensus. Okay, but just uh, before we get into this, we need to understand a little difference between Greek and Hebrew conceptions of time. And this will be tough for us because we are all trained in a Greek view of time. And Greeks saw time as a timeline with the past behind the future ahead. So everything happens on a linear time frame and the past is behind us, the future is ahead of us. Uh, things happen in time. So in essence, time has its own substance. You still with me? Did you, did you catch that? Okay, bottom line is that everything's very linear. Well, because it happens in time, the Greeks' concept of eternity was timeless. It wasn't a continued duration. It was outside of time completely. But the Hebrews didn't have that timeline. They had a concept of complete and incomplete. Things that were complete were the past and things that were incomplete were the future. But their conception was the total opposite of the Greeks and that the past, what is complete, is before you. That's what you can see. And the future that is incomplete is behind you. You can't see that. Russ, you've got your thumb around the other way here on the rocks. Did I? I thought it didn't make sense. You've got the complete ahead, what we can see. Yep, that, no, that's exactly right. Oh, for the Hebrews. Yeah, you just said the opposite. Okay, for, for the Hebrews, the complete is the past. You've got complete ahead. Yep. If I'm standing here, it's what's in front of me. So that the Hebrews would orient them, themselves in their thinking as facing the past, which is complete, and walking backwards into a future that is unknown. 
It's incomplete. <laughs> but but think about it the other way. That the Greeks, see, the past is behind, and I'm walking forward, but I can't see what's there. And so the, the Hebrews just had this concept, what I can see is complete. It's here. What I can't see is, be, is behind me. It's unknown. It's... Once something becomes complete, it's now in front of me. Yesterday is complete. I can see it. I know what I did. I can speculate what I might do tomorrow, but it's not complete. So it's unknown. Go ahead. I've also heard, and I don't know much about it, that the Hebrews looked in time as more of a, some sort of a circular continuum thing. Yeah, that, there, that is true as well. Be- everything, because there was, it wasn't complete, incomplete, it wasn't a timeline, it was much more circular. Years were circular. And so circle has this sense of not things, you know, starting and going forward, ending. So summer, spring, uh, sorry, spring, summer, fall, winter. They would see it in a circle, spring, summer, fall, winter. Because when you finish winter, you come back to summer. Or or spring. Sorry, back to spring. I'm really good at this. When you finish winter, you come back to spring. But on a timeline, you come to a new spring. Which is, makes sense. But they just saw it differently. Do you get that a little bit? Why is that important? Because I want to take a look at a number of biblical scriptures and I want you to help me out here. How many of you have a Bible with you? Okay. We're going to read what the Bible says about something to do with time. So, starting on this side, who's got a Bible? Just a second. I'm going to give you all the verses and then I'm going to ask you to read them all. Uh, So, Johan, Psalm 90, verse 4. Elaine, 2 Peter 3, 8. Anyone over here? Mary, you got Deuteronomy 33, 27. Michael, is that a Bible in front of you? You've got Isaiah 57, 15. And then on this side, who do we got? Julie? You've got Psalm 90, verse 2. Anyone else have a Bible? Rob? Psalm 103, 19. Steve, 1 Chronicles 16.36. And Kathy, Isaiah 63.16. Okay, we're going to take a look at those. If you'd, uh, starting with this side, Johan, if you'd read it out quite loud. For a thousand years in your eyes are just like yesterday when it passes by. And like a watch in the night. Wonderful. And to Peter. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Wonderful. Deuteronomy 33:27. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. 
He will thrust out the enemy from before you and will say, Destroy. Isaiah 57.15 For thus says the High and Lofty One who inhabits eternity, thus name the Lord Holy. Thus his name Holy. Who inhabits eternity. Psalm 92. Psalm 92, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from beginning to end, you are God. From beginning to end. 19, sorry. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. That was 103 to 19? Good. Uh, 1 Chronicles. 1636. Let's fear the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said, Amen. Everlasting to everlasting. Isaiah 63, 16. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. I think it was Psalm 103, 17. 103, 17. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Sorry, oh, that, that was my fault. Again. 17. Yeah. And Julie, yours uh, also said from everlasting to everlasting. Yours actually read from beginning to end, mm. but, but uh, the actual words used are from everlasting to everlasting. Right. Okay. So, think about that for a moment. What conclusions can you draw about God and time from those things? A thousand days is as a, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is a thousand years. What does that tell you? Does that say God's outside of time, or does that say the measurement of time is different for God? From everlasting to everlasting. Does that say God is timeless? Or does that say the duration of time that God exists is unending? The eternal God. Does, does that mean that God is outside of time? Or does that mean his duration is eternal? I've always thought that God was outside of time. Because we start with a philosophical concept and then that colors how we look at the Bible. But if you don't start with that concept and you look at the Bible, you can say, okay, maybe the Bible doesn't say God's outside of time. Maybe it does say that God exists for eternity. Everlasting to everlasting. Maybe it does say the measurement of time because when you start talking days and years, you're talking measurement. You're not talking outside of time. Yet those are the scriptures. Guys, that's all of them in the Bible.
That's all of them. There are a couple more that use the same language, eternal. But that's, that's virtually it. And so, how do we get the idea of the eternal now concept? Because it started with a philosophical idea. C.S. Lewis had that idea. C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. Uh, more recently, Philip Yancey in a book that he wrote. But it goes back to Augustine and the, the eternal now that God is outside of time and therefore everything happens for God in the present. I, I used to think too that God is outside time because that solved quite a few dilemmas but it created other dilemmas because if I fail an exam to God that's no issue because he can, take, he can fix that because he's not controlled by the time. For me it was the sequence of events that yeah. God, if it's not then he can correct that and I can pass even though I thought, but he never does that. <laughs> <laughs> How come? But, but, but the reality is, where this faced theologians and why they tend to come down to this point is that it explained in their thinking prophecy. If everything exists to God in the present, then it's not that he knows the future, it's that he sees the future. Now, that might make good philosophical sense, but is it necessarily Bible? Are we going to get our concept of God from his revelation of himself, or are we going to get it from Plato's reasoning that is imposed on how we read the Bible? Now, we're going to jump to some more scriptures that have to do with sequence. Okay, because sequence is the essence of time, right? Anything that happens in sequence is what time is about. Past, present, future is time. Okay? It's not outside of time. It's time. So, again, we're going to start with Genesis 6, 6 and 7. Anyone over here on this side? Richard. Yep, 1 Samuel 15, yep. 11 and 35, and we're going to throw in 29, uh, but, but we're going to get to that later on. I just want to throw it in there. 2 Samuel 24, let, let's go on this side. 2 Samuel 24, 16. Mary, Mary's got it. Mary's got it. And then Jonah, 3, 10, and 4, 2, Johan. Okay. Now, what we're looking at here is the concept of sequence. Okay? I don't want to get sidetracked on other theological discussions because these open up a whole lot of other questions, but I just want to kind of stick to this one thing because we're trying to deal with this one issue of time. So, Richard. Okay. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. God was grieved and sorry, yet when he made man and the animals, he said it was all good. 
is that a change? Change signifies some sort of sequence. 1 Samuel 15. Who's got that one? I greatly regret that I have set Saul up as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. In 35. And Samuel, sent, sorry, Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he'd made Saul king over Israel. And, 29. and also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. I threw that in there because it is actually the same word. It says he regretted, and then he says he's not a man that he would regret. Because it's the exact same word in Hebrew. Which is going to bring us to another question later on. That's why I threw it in there. Uh, 24, 2nd chapter 24. Uh, 16. And when the angel of the Lord stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Let me throw you for a loop here. That word in Hebrew? Relented, regretted. It's all the same word. Changed the mind and repented. It's all the same word. So when it says God relented, you could translate God changed his mind. <laughs> well, actually this word occurs 26 times in the Bible regarding God. Okay, back to the Jonah. Jonah 3.10 When God saw what they did and how they turned from the evil way, then God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And 4.2, he prayed to Yahweh and said, Please, Yahweh, not this what I said when I was still in my own country. That is why I hurried to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and you relent of doing harm. Okay. Don't get sidetracked here. We're simply talking about sequence. We're talking about God in time. All those verses indicate something happened and then something different happened. And there's hundreds that God said it was good and then he was sorry. That God was, grew angry. All those, all those verses talk about sequence. All of them say that God has some sort of sequence. Okay? Now, the measurement of that for an eternal being would be totally different. <coughs> but it's important that, that you catch that. Anyone have any questions there? Is it pretty clear? I mean, it's pretty clear to me. I hope I'm uh, shaking up some of the things that you've been taught. Because, as you say, we often believe God's outside of time. But how often do we ever look at the Bible and say, does the Bible say that? If you look at C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, he just 
makes an illustration. That's philosophy. And then with that in mind, guys through the ages have said, with that in mind, this verse, a thousand days is as a, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is a thousand years means that God's outside of time. So we start with a philosophical idea, and then we find a verse that seems to support it. Now, why is that important? Because you're going to find that much of what we consider theology is done exactly that way. You read the Bible. <laughs> the Bible first. That's the whole part of this class. <laughs> okay, some consequences of the eternal now. Some consequences of the eternal now is one is that everything is a stagnant present to God. Wait, say that again. Everything is a stagnant present to God. Eternal now means for God, everything happens right now. There's no past, there's no future, it's all present. But that also means there's no change, which was Plato's whole point from the beginning. A God must be eternally unchanging, which is why he must be timeless, so there's no change. But if there's no change, there's no emotions. If there's no change, there's no decisions. Let us make man in our image signifies a time when man wasn't, a decision to make man, and a time when man was. Problem is that an eternal now, a stagnant, unchanging God, has no there's no real personality. There's no mind, will, and emotions. We can't interact with a non-personal being. It makes God a force rather than a person. The force be with you, Luke. We're going to get there. questions, but we can't let the consequence change. Okay, let's not change the Bible. Let's not create a philosophical idea because it fits better in the consequences later on. We're going to have to take a look at, okay, what does the Bible actually say? And again, what does that mean? And so, good question. Uh, both good questions, but we're going to get to those. Okay. I don't want to jump ahead because I don't want to answer the question. My, my goal is to teach you how to read the Bible so that you can answer those questions. We're going to get there. 
thing is, uh, if God doesn't really have personality, if God's just a force, we can't really know him, but we can know about him. Major theological shift that took place as a result of this is that Christianity became academic knowledge, not relationship. We can know about the qualities of God, the characteristics of God, but we can't actually have relationship with Him. Okay, and we're going to see how that affects later. Uh, We're going to take a, a... five-minute break, and then we're going to hit one other point, which is a result of this, which we've opened up, is God unchanging, uh, immutable. Okay, they, we, we had one scripture that said something about that and others that didn't. So we're going to come back in just five minutes. So take a break. And... Okay. <laughs> Break's over. We're back. Why don't you take a look at a number of scriptures again and then applying what we learned, just take a look at what they're telling us. So again, I'm going to just ask for volunteers to read. Uh, Numbers 23, 19. We're going to start on this side. Kathy? 1 Samuel 15, 29. Steve? 1 Samuel 15, 29. Rob? Ezekiel 24, 14. Julie, Malachi 3, 6, and Michael, James 1, 17. Okay, I'm going to hand the rest of these out so I can continue with this. Elaine, if you do Exodus 32, 14, Mary 1, Samuel 15, 11, and 35, we read that already. Johan, Malachi 3, 7. You guys, uh, Psalm 106.23, and I'll do Ezekiel 22.30. Okay, we're going to start over here with uh, Richard, or Kathy. Or a son of man that he should change his mind? Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Great. Next one, Steve. 1 Samuel 15 29. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent. For he is not a man that he should relent. Or lie. Ezekiel 24. I, the Lord, have spoken it. It shall come to pass, and I will do it. I will not hold back, nor will I spare, nor will I relent. According to your ways and according to your deeds, they will judge you, says the Lord God. Uh, Malachi. I am the Lord, and I do not change. That is why you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. James 1.17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation 
or shadow of turning. Okay, if you only read those, you'd say God never changes. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm God, I change not. Mm. Moving along. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the whoa, disaster whoa. he had written. Whoa, whoa, he just said, I don't relent. <laughs> but the Lord relented. No wonder we're confused. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Come on, God. What's Samuel? Uh, I'll start with verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. And then verse 29. Thir- 35. Oh, 20. 35. 35. Just do 35, yeah. Okay. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Malachi 3.7 From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says Yahweh of armies. But you say, how can we return? Return to me? And I'll return to you. But I don't relent. I don't change. Psalm 106, 23. Therefore he said that he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath lest he destroy them. So that's Psalm referring to uh, Exodus 32 where it says God relented. He said he was going to destroy them had not Moses stood in the in the breach. Ezekiel twenty two thirty. So I sought for a man among them who would make up a wall, stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Therefore I have poured out my indignation on them. Relent, regret, as I said earlier, repent. Change his mind is all the same word. So the question, is God... Schizophrenic. (laughs) Is God schizophrenic? That's the question. Is God immutable or unchanging? Yes. He says he's unchanging, but then he says he changes. So what can we conclude that God is unchanging in character, in essence, and anything he promises, he'll do. But at the same time, it seems to be that there is interaction with man. He said he was going to destroy Nineveh, but they repented, and so God relented. So there seems to be some interaction. He was going to destroy them, but Moses interceded for people, so he relented of the destruction he was going to bring. The fact that he relented, does that mean he's changeable? No. I would say Tony is a man of integrity. 
Is he not a man of integrity if he ever changes his mind about something? Depends on what he does with that change of mind. <laughs> if he tells me, Russ, I'm going to be at your house at 10, but then Fiona gets in a car accident and he rushes off to the hospital and he doesn't come at 10, is he not a man of integrity? No, his essence is the same, but his interaction with life meant that he had to make some adjustment. Good illustration. Yeah. Yeah. Um, don't we still, still struggle with that to some degree? Because we have a tendency to God, see God as absolute. So that absolute, he can't come to that level. That's the dilemma. That's Which again, goes back to Plato. Yeah. If there is a God... He will be eternally unchanging, which means he's timeless, immutable, unchangeable, and impassable, unfeeling. And we've seen very clearly that God has emotions, or at least has expressed that. What happens then is a philosopher will say, well, that's not really God. That's a term that they use called anthropomorphism. That's the writers putting their own feeling on God. But the danger is what they just did is changed who the author of the Bible is. Is the Bible God's revelation of himself? Or is the Bible a collection of man's ideas about what God should be like? If it's God, God's revelation of himself and he, had, he expresses himself as having emotion, then we have to believe that God as emotion, unless it doesn't fit our philosophy, then we start trying to adjust the Bible. And so then we're starting not with the authority of Scripture, but we're starting with the authority of the mind. And so what does the Bible say about God? In character, unchangeable, but for some reason he interacts with people. Because that's why he sent Jesus, because of his love for his creation, the people. Yeah. Us. Absolutely. Interaction. So again, we have to be careful because what you said is true. We think of God's absolute. If he were to relent or regret or change his mind or not do something, even though the Bible 26 times says that about God, we just discount all that and say, no, but God, if he exists, must be immutable. Because Plato said it. And who's going to argue with him? But he stuck by its guns with sending Jesus so that we could be redeemed, so there was a sacrifice. Yeah. Because we're sinners to draw us to him. So he fulfilled all that about himself. Yeah. So, if you can come to any conclusion, I would say, biblically, we see that God is in time and that he has sequence. 
He does things past, present, and future. The Bible talks about him. Revelation talks about who was and is and is to come, is to come or always will be. So there is something of sequence. Again, the Bible's revelation. Not philosophy, but the Bible. And that while God doesn't change, he changes his mind. Now that's a pretty heavy-duty thought. Now we're going to pick this up next week because we're going to jump forward to our good friend John Calvin and take a look at some of the philosophies that impacted him. Again, if we start with the idea that everything is fixed, that God doesn't interact with man, then there is no change. There's no interaction. But there's also, if God's not in time, if he doesn't have the ability to of personality, then we can't actually have relationship with him. We can't know him. John 17, 3, Jesus says this, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and the Son whom you sent. That's the whole goal of covenant, is relationship. Interestingly enough, if you read the uh, Jehovah's Witness version of the Bible, they call it a translation, but it wasn't. It was actually just guys who fit Jehovah's Witness theology into the Bible. They've changed that and it says, this is eternal life, that they take in a knowledge of you. That they know about you rather than know you. And that's where much of theology shifted from about 1500 A.D. An academic belief in something, some principle, some idea, some, some, as Plato said, some form that we can know about but can't, don't have relationship with. I'm getting ahead. We're going to finish that next week. I've given you enough to think about. Uh, if, you've, if you have uh, ongoing questions, I'm happy to deal with those. Or I've actually put together a reading list. If you want to read more on any of these things, you can find a lot of good things. Uh, so we're, we're slowly building up to dealing with some of these issues. Because the question is, what does God know? Does he know it because it's determined or because he know it, does he know it because he knows it? <laughs> that, that, those are tough questions. Now, we're not going to get an answer to that because the bottom line is it's, it's a very, it, that's been the major theological issue for 500 years. <laughs> 